0: for joining us in mapping the zone a podcast dedicated to informal discussion of the works in context of thomas Pinchon. my name is cody i am one of the co-hosts
1: hi i'm will
2: i'm
0: luke and i'm kate we have finally finished mason and dixon and we will use this episode to look back on everything about it what we liked what we didn't like um talk about some of our favorite parts and just uh, kind of have a loose overview of of everything um in the book. So I wanted to start just kind of like we do with our normal episodes, um, with everybody's just overall opinion of the book as a whole.
3: I think it's definitely up there as far as one of Thomas Pinchon's best. That's for sure. Especially having read it a second time now, you know, years older and and wiser. I'll be so grand as to say, um, (laughs) and going through it, like slowly and examining all of the all of the like broader context and themes. Like everything we've we've done through this podcast has certainly given me a significantly higher appreciation for the novel. My my thoughts on it the first time I read it were definitely like, oh, that was like a really warm character driven like pinch-on story as opposed to a lot of the other ones like I really enjoyed the the actual storytelling aspects of it. I found it to be, you know, just as funny as most of his other work and but a bit more impactful as far as the the like deep study of the characters and but a lot of the broader contexts of you know the the religiosity of the novel and of the sort of examination of, you know modernity versus uh, untapped you know, land and civilization, like a lot of those broader things that we've spent a good chunk of the time on this show talking about, I don't think necessarily made the impact on me that that they were supposed to. Um, and so taking the time to really carefully go over the book and, and consider all of the details has been pretty big uh from a standpoint of evolving my point of view on it i think that as as i believe i said maybe four episodes ago like i i think if someone was to ask me like what Pinchon to start with to understand the things that Pinchon writes about thematically and cares about i think this would probably be the book that i would that i would tell them to go to i think that it gives potentially the best overall gestalt of of all of the different things that he covers to to lesser and greater degrees in his other work, um, all sort of in in one volume. Of course, assuming that the person I'm recommending this to is okay reading nearly an 800 page book, um, <laughs> yeah, and isn't isn't gonna be like having a hard time swimming through the language of it or anything like that. But I, I think that it's fitting that this is his earliest book chronologically as far as the years that it covers and also happens to be the the most comprehensive book as far as the things that he cares about and the thematic influences on his writing that he will then explore in all the subsequent novels um we kind of briefly talked about it with Brett but i i am continually curious what reading these books chronologically to the years they cover would do and i feel like starting with Mason and Dixon would be a pretty cool experience
0: Yeah, I'm I'm with you on that. I so I read this book. This is the second time for me as well, and I I read it the first time. uh, I I actually started it around this time last year, and it I I think very similar to you, Kate. I I came away from it feeling like you know it's probably his warmest book, and uh, you know really enjoying it, but uh, more so obviously on a on a surface level. Um, I I take my time whenever I read his books, and you know, more so than I do with other books, I, I will, you know, I generally have the wiki open and I'm, I'm looking up the references and all that, but I think taking this long with it and, and really digging into all the aspects of it and having a, a, you know, discussion about it, I think has really opened my, my eyes to a lot of the things that I missed on the first read through. And obviously we didn't even touch on everything that we could have touched on, um, which is Again, I think that's something we all love about his work: is that there's so much about it that you can go back and reread endlessly, and and constantly come up with new things and, and find different things buried in there that you missed previously. Um, but I also, I, I think, I guess, I missed the in, the in the first time I read it, some of the darker themes that are in there. Um, obviously, I, I I tracked on this all the stuff about slavery and all that, but the the more um, kind of Lovecraftian concepts or, or interpretations of, of the land itself as this entity and, and the sort of underlying tension and horror that kind of bubbles throughout the, especially in the middle and and later part of the book. Uh, I didn't really track as well in my first read through. So that was um, a lot of fun to, to pick up on and and added a lot of uh, depth and, and, allowed for me to really view this through a different kind of lens this time around. Um, I also forgot how funny it is. I think on my first <laughs> read-through, like, I, I tracked a lot of the funny parts, but I, didn't, I definitely didn't catch as many as we have gone over, and, and I'm glad that I had other people to kind of point out some of those parts and, and remind me of them, because I think those are some of the best parts of the book, and honestly, it's, it's up there with, with Vineland and Inherent Vice is arguably his funniest work. Like through and through, there is so much humor in this book, and it's well done. I, I tend to, I think we, I mentioned this way back, I think when we talked about the duck. Like with, with humorous books, I, I usually get the humor, but I don't generally audibly laugh out loud or I have to stop reading yeah. because I'm laughing. I absolutely did that so many times with this book where I just had to stop and just compose myself because I was laughing so hard. And, um it just it i think that was something i missed on my first read through was just the the amount of humor that exists within here and as far as recommending it it's i i definitely agree with you that it's a really good starter point for his work um if i i but i do think it has to be recommended to the right person because again yeah it is a long book it's you know almost 800 pages the The writing style can be off putting for people admittedly, I think, and I think it was will that mentioned earlier that um once you kind of get a feel for it and fall into its rhythm, it really is not difficult to read and parse out what he's saying. um, you just have to allow yourself to sink into that and to fall into that and and really absorb yourself in it, and then it just becomes a very smooth read, I think. Um, but it can definitely be intimidating, so it, it's definitely a hard sell, I think, for some people. But it's absolutely worth the read, and it's among my favorites of his work.
3: Well, and the other note on the humor, too, is the fact that he is successful at doing that in the 16th century yeah. um, dial, dialect. Like, the fact that he can still prompt that kind of a response from the reader is an additional just feat of just impressivity as far as the writing is concerned
0: yeah absolutely
4: yeah for me this is probably <clears throat> a top three top two pension book um the first time i read against today was probably my favorite out of any of his stuff and then i tried to reread it a few years ago just couldn't get as into it as i had been um the first time i read mason and Dixon is about i think i've talked about this before on the podcast but it's about 10 years ago and um I was really going through a lot at that time. I really needed uh, another world to escape to and uh, the warmth of this book and kind of the, it's portrayal of friendship and just kind of how fun this book is, was a really nice escape for me at that time. Um, I, I didn't like it quite as much on my, on my second and third read throughs for this podcast. Um, but I still enjoyed it a lot. And I, it, it it has been kind of fun to take it a little bit slower uh, with the podcast and parse it a little bit more and make myself kind of think about it deeply and think about it, think about things a little bit more than I normally would. Um, you know, there's some really fun parts of this book that just didn't really stand out to me too much the first time I read it. The first time I read it, I think I, I focused a lot on like Stig and the Chinese astronomer part. And there's a few different parts that I focus a lot on. Uh but you know stuff like the Lambden Worm, I, I didn't it didn't really stick with me. And that was maybe one of my favorite parts of, of this read through was like stuff like the Lambden Worm. Yeah. Um so yeah, and I've really enjoyed going over it with y'all and, and everything. Um but yeah, like I said, it's probably top two or three Pinching novels for me.
2: Yeah, and, and any anybody who listened to the first few episodes of this show. Uh, may remember that, you know, the, what Cody and Kate talked about, I, I this was my first Pension novel, and I agree, I think it is an excellent introduction, I, w- I would say that it might be better to start with The Crying of Lot 49 if you want to, you know, dig into V or Gravity's Rainbow first, but, you know, this this is an incredible introduction to really, his, his his works, and it definitely is in among my favorite books. Period, and it remains my favorite Pynchon novel at this point. Uh, because sure, I've uh, have I read The Crying of Lot Forty Time, <laughs> the Crying of Lot Forty Nine more times. <laughs> yes, however, uh, th- this is an incredible book. Like I can't think of any other novel that I would be be as happy to just um well to put sorry to restart the sentence um i'd be happy to to start another go through tomorrow like i am not saying that we should but <laughs> i i would be fine with that personally <laughs> this book really works for me and there there is so much to dig into and pull out of but it, it the first time i read it i didn't get any of that you know it it Contrary to what Kate and Cody said, it's not like as this was my first pension novel. I came to this and was amazed at the warmth and the 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 friendliness, I guess. But it is some. It, th- this was my maybe third postmodern American text, if you want to call them that, um, after Catch Twenty Two and the, and Slaughterhouse Five and. Uh, I can't think of a better kind of capitulation to the entire movement than this novel. And, you know, some would argue that it it breaks from that. You know, it did come out 40 years after the start of the the quote-unquote genre. But, you know, it, it fits within the lines at least decently. And regardless of any of that nonsense, it's just a beautiful book. I love all the characters. I love every single character. There are many that I wish there was a there's a little bit more of a look into, like most of Pynchon's works. But unlike his others, it, it really does seem like even the smaller characters get a little bit more fleshed out. They get a little bit more uh, meat on their bones uh, to, to misuse an idiom it it, they seem more real they seem more three-dimensional in this book than in any of his others really
1: Mm -hmm. yeah
2: and uh, you know maybe when i reread against the day i'll i'll have loved that more than i did this time through mason and dixon but with with the with the exception of a couple of pages really and maybe more than a couple, you know, a handful of pages. <laughs> I, I couldn't say that I dislike any part of this book. I, I think there are little niggles and nitpicks, but I don't mind anything. I, I love all of it, and I'm very happy to have been able to go through it this at this pace with all of you, so that um, in 20 years, if I have children one day, I can force my children to read it and feel <laughs> smug about it.
3: well i guess that prompts an interesting question too to everybody off of what you said will is you know do we do we have any i don't want to say negative thoughts about it but like is there anything we would change about the novel do we think it's too long like is there any any thought process there obviously you know will other than maybe like two or three pages everything's pretty good but um, oh yeah it's it's perfect if you ask me yeah
1: (laughs) yeah
0: Maybe we should yeah I mean we so we talked in our our group chat earlier and I I think Will had some uh because he wasn't with us last week to to defend uh the ending that we well I say we I, I think mostly Kate and I kind of picked apart a little bit so I I would to answer your question Kate I would say really the only thing that I would think needed to be changed I don't I don't even want to say needed to be changed but I would be okay with changing is the ending I can't answer how to change it necessarily. I just... There's something about it that didn't 100% work for me. Um, Mm -hmm. So that would really be my only nitpick, I think, is that it either needed to be restructured or pared down a small bit. But other than that, this is pretty pretty flawless i would i would think i mean it certainly has weaker points in it as does every book i think but through and through that's really the only thing i can think that i would really change
4: i think i would probably have us get to america first um or america quicker i mean sorry um because i mean we do get i think there's two different time jumps in the america section of about a year um I it's kind of I like the first section a lot uh for personal reasons and just because I, it's a good section uh but I do think it could be about fifty to seventy five pages shorter um I do think the book could generally be a bit shorter. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not sure exactly what I would cut specifically to be honest um nothing is really coming to mind um but I do think, and I, I also think that maybe we could get a little bit more um, with that. I mean, if you cut some stuff from the first section and keep the book length, that would allow this, the America section to be a little bit more fleshed out at points. Um, yeah, and I mean, I don't, I don't necessarily want to step on any toes, but I do think the book can be a little discursive. And uh, while I like a lot of the, like, pretty much all the tangents and the stories within the story, uh, I did sometimes find myself kind of wondering... Why we weren't focusing more on on Mason and Dixon uh, specifically um, and I don't i also i think i I wouldn't have
3: minded there being more of the frame story included as well
4: mm-hmm.
3: yeah i'm glad I'm glad you were the one who said that uh, who said that first, Luke um, because <laughs> I actually agree i i I agree with you so i I do think that the ending. Could be restructured in a in a better way, and I kind of outlined what I thought would potentially be a better option last episode. But I also think that the book is just it's a bit too long. Um, from a standpoint of what Pinchon is very clearly trying to do and what he is he is genuinely pushing for thematically in this book, I think that all of the the tangents and discursive elements of it um, to borrow your phrasing, Luke, I think are, are not necessarily to the benefit of the overall work. I think that reading it the way we did, where it's like five chapters at a time over the course of like, you know, how many, how many months, like five months we've been talking about I think really does cut against the feeling of that. Because you're sort of reading it almost in, I don't want to say short story format, but something a bit more akin to that, where, you know, once a week, you're only reading 50 pages of it.
1: It's but I like feel serializing like if you, it
3: Yeah, essentially. But I feel like taking the book, if you, it was the only book that you were reading and you were just sitting down for like a, you know, however many hour long session you were just reading this book, it would feel like a lot of these elements that he's he's going on tangents with or or going off on on different you know journeys with only to return to the main narrative are interesting in and of themselves and there there's stuff to dig into and pull apart there and think about but ultimately i don't know how much a lot of that serves the greater work as a whole because when we're really when we really got down to like the 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 meat of the mythologizing of america and of the the sort of mapping of the territory or the zone uh, so to speak, and what that does to, you know, the world and all of that. A lot of those major elements that this book is really trying to operate in don't come into play until, you know, halfway to seventy-five percent of the way through the book. Um, that, of course, doesn't make the book bad, but I do feel like there is a way for this book to still function with the intent that it has and with the the elements that it really wants to push forward to the reader without it being 780 pages. Um, Yeah, and I think that potentially it was just a case where Pinchon had a lot that he wanted to say and didn't necessarily know what to cut or, or how to cut out of it. Of course, none of us can speak for the man himself, but that's sort of how it felt to me as I look back and analyze the work as a whole. I think there is a a bit of a slimmer, better novel in, within *Mason and Dixon*. So I'm gonna I'm gonna say a few
2: uh, what may be contradictory, but I'm gonna call superficially contradictory for now. Uh,
1: things. Excuse me. Um. What?
2: When I I, I have to ask each of you. Uh, when you first read this book, how how long did it, did it? Take you? That's not the phrasing I want to frame it as. But like, what? How how long did you read it for? I suppose.
0: No, I I get what you're saying. I can actually. I think I can actually pull up the amount of time it took me on StoryGraph. Hold on a second. I'll let the (laughs) other two answer.
3: Um, this wasn't logged on my on my Goodreads. My Goodreads user data is pretty incomplete, unfortunately. But uh, the first time I read it, I want to say I probably read it over the course of, of two months i think
0: okay mine only has my most recent read through um i think i'm about with kate i think it took me about two months month and a half two months probably
4: yeah i think my first read through is about that much and then before we started for the podcast i read the whole book uh, like in the interim between crying about 49 and uh us starting i think i read it in like eight or nine days that time which it was definitely. At I had least. a lot of time in my hands, yeah. And that was that was definitely uh, that was definitely an experience. I wouldn't necessarily recommend reading that way. Reading it, yeah. That yeah. Mason and Dixon all day, every day. Yeah, it was like I was about a
2: hundred pages a day, which is just a lot. So yeah. So my first time through was nowhere near that fast, but it it was a it was about a month. It was there was you know some segmenting that it was it was about a month of reading. Um, and my first time through, again, that I, I'm not speaking with any authority here, but more from the perspective of the, I was a naive reader. I was not coming into this book with a with a sense of Pynchon as an author. I was not coming into it with a with a familiarity with quote unquote Pynchon studies. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, to me, what to me uh, the discursive elements, while I I did love them, um, a lot of them were utterly unimportant i completely agree and a lot of them could have been trimmed um however that first time through two two things happened reading it at that at that rate which you know as as luke has proven is not the fastest you can read the book
1: (laughs) also maybe you shouldn't read it
2: that quickly (laughs) Um, but at that at that more accelerated rate compared to the, the five months or the or the you know two months period uh what what kind of begins to happen is that it it starts to become like a collage kind of thing. The memories fade into each other. The the stories and the timelines kind of sort, sort themselves out without intentional sorting. Because, you know, reading through this book, writing the summaries, and I imagine, you know, Luke reading it within a week. You're doing a lot of, like, sitting and piecing together. You're trying to draw lines, you're trying to understand what's happening. And that's mm-hmm. the case with most of his other books. Um, but this is an aberrant one in my experience in that it, it does begin to layer itself into a structure um, if you read it at the right pace. And I think that, weirdly, that right pace is either kind of straight through but not rushing yourself or it's um, to to piece it out like we have here. I do think that those discursive elements lead lead to a structure that benefits from either very slow, subtle, exhaustive analysis, or to to really trying to blur them together so that they don't um, each independently feel important. And so you don't sit there thinking, okay, but what about that? What about this? Because you're not remembering all the individual instances, all you're remembering is, oh, all that stuff happened. Mm -hmm. And what begins to happen by the time you get to these last few chapters, is a there's a sort of untangling, especially at, at a, an accelerated reading pace. And a, again, I, I think that at the rate that Luke read it, I think it could become a violent. <laughs> where you, you're going from like this incredibly long and twisting story in America to basically like this almost like structural gridlock, where it's taking these massive turns left and right and flipping around entirely, um, but then also just stopping and sitting and staring at a scene for a long time before jumping off to an entirely different period of time without any real ig- indication. Um, and all of that, with that sense of kind of collage, uh, it, it, it does bring... I think it makes an argument by form it makes an argument against any any sort of like unification of history I think I think that this of all of his works is fairly, fairly obviously his most concerned with the value of historicism and the value of like telling stories, the value of what we have. And I think that one thing that Pynchon has been trying to do his entire career and he's making it incredibly clear in this book, is that we cannot allow ourselves to sit around and say that's that thing happened. We know this exact thing happened. We're confident in it and anyone who says otherwise is wrong. Like he, he's he's incredibly clear about that in this book. Mm-hmm. And I think that either reading it in the pace that we have for this reading group or in that kind of sweet spot of, you know, maybe an hour a day or something really does get you in a good headspace to intuitively come to that conclusion without even engaging on a thematic level. Because that first time through, I was not engaging in those things. I was engaging with the, the more horrific things because, you know, I wasn't familiar with the the truly rank depths of his other works, and so it was it was surprising still compared to other authors for me to run across the scenes in you know South South Africa, for example, mm-hmm. y- you know those things stuck out to me and it, but I wasn't used to you know reading in the mode that reading his books really requires you to do so and I was still able to track it and I was still able to come to those conclusions thanks to those structural choices he made. Again, I don't think that those are, um, you know, uh, beyond reproach. I think that they there they, they are absolutely points of criticism. Like, as much as I love the werebeaver thing, what does that chapter provide? I guess you could, you could, uh, you can dig at something, but it's kind of completely random. Like you said, Kate, a lot of these little scenes are entirely useless, but they are fun and i think that fun i think that sense of adventure and the the larger than life of it all the sense that you know that that guy's life is crazy that beaver that were beaver's guy's life is crazy and you want to hear more and you want dr isaac and what's his name to go find the were beaver you want to imagine their dreams and to me, I don't think that you can have such a long, discursive novel without having this essentially, like, break slamming at the end and uh, uh, a, kind of a cliffhanger of saying, hey, you know, I'm never going to write a sequel to this where you see the suns go off, but you can, you can imagine, you can dream these kids going off and meeting these things.
1: Mm-hmm. Well,
0: yeah. I think... To your point about the 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 asides or the tangents, um, I think when I when I look back at those scenes, I, I think most of the ones that people would track as being I don't want to say egregious, but may, maybe unnecessary, or you know, like you mentioned with the 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 beaver thing, like what is it adding to the story? I think when when we kind of look back and pull out on the story as a whole you know this is this is cherry coke telling the story to his his kid or his 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 family which which includes young kids um to entertain them and to be able to stay where he's staying so you have to engage those kids like they're not no kid is going to want to sit and listen to the story of Mason and Dixon mapping out this line so you have to have these weird you know whether it's a werebeaver beaver or the hipster werewolf or the mechanical duck um those kind of things, I think, are inserted in there because, again, this is a story being told to uh, a, a group of people, including children, and in some cases, you know, you could even back it out farther and Pinchon as an author knows that he has to keep the audience engaged and inserting these little things is a good, is a nice little break. And it seems like they're structured and paced in such a way where they're, they occur at these moments where you need that moment of levity. And you need to have that kind of break from all of the um, the darkness or the uh, tediousness of the story. At that point, you just kind of need something that that kind of helps you just kind of chill and and just enjoy the story for the story's sake. You know, whether it's you know Zoid cutting down all these trees really fast and and you know doing his thing, or the hipster werewolf, you know, whatever it is, I think those are nice little breaks in the story, and and that they're there to serve as that purpose.
3: Yeah, so I I'll respond to both of you separately. Um Have you read Infinite Jest, Will? I have not, no. Okay. So what you're describing, I feel like, is is also what Infinite Jest does, but does it significantly better than Mason and Dixon does. Um David Foster Wallace's editor, Michael Peach, described Infinite Jest as something that looks like a pane of glass that was shattered from a very great height. Um and, in particular, your statement about like I don't think you can write such a long discursive novel without like a a break screeching stop at the end. um i would I would counter with infinite jest. It does not have that break screeching stop at the end. And the it actually slows down <clears throat> considerably from from the rest of the novel prior to to kind of the ending portion of it. The other thing that I would say is that infinite jest is also, a fairly long and discursive novel but all of the different tangents that that book decides to take for the elements of either comic relief which there is plenty of in the book or for um you know thematic support all tie into the same central things that that david foster wallace is talking about over the the entirety of the the thousand or 1300 page novel if you include the endnotes. Um, so I think it's something that can be done, and I think it's something that was done better a couple years prior to Pinchon publishing this novel. I think that where I'm where I'm coming from with my opinion on a lot of this stuff within Mason and Dixon is that a lot of that a lot of what Pinchon is doing, in my opinion, feels more like the author saying, and another thing. Instead of here is another thing that has to do with the other 17 things in the last 10 chapters that that fits together into a better knot. like it doesn't. It doesn't feel necessarily as cohesive. It feels like a series of separate points that are being made intermittently and then to, to Cody's element about like the entertainment factor for the kids. I think that also cuts both ways where. Yes, you do have these entertainment pieces put into there to entertain the children, but then you would also have to acknowledge the fact that Cherry Coke is also talking about like sexual torture devices used by the Jesuit priests, also to children.
1: That's yeah, that's true.
3: Is is also talking about, you know, the the like strange esoteric history of the Crusades melded with a piece of folklore from from Europe also as well to the kids. So I don't know if that necessarily works as a justification for those elements being present in the text. I think that there is potentially an argument there where it's like you're telling a story to children over the course of, you know, however long this book took place in the frame narrative. But it it feels like a lot of those elements that are added are additional rather than necessarily substantial to the overall work as a whole. That's, the feeling that I get. I don't think any of them are necessarily bad, and I think that taking a longer read on it like I had mentioned at the beginning does end up creating this this serialized effect where you're getting these different ideas in, a, in like a slower IV drip. but I don't think that necessarily, at least me anyway, helps me feel like they are integral to the actual book as a whole um, structure or unit.
2: Okay, so I um I completely see what you're saying. What I will what I will do to to disagree is to wildly gesticulate in specific directions about an author I have not read. Um uh, my my understanding <laughs> of David Foster Wallace is that um a lot of his writing is informed by a motivation to try and reclaim a certain form of sincerity and Uh uh, you know I think that there's there's been a ton of conversation about all of that and I think there's a a lot of latitude and at some point I would like to make this argument preferably after having read some of David Foster Wallace's work um that 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 Pinchon is much less like ironic in the way that Wallace discussed irony and much more in line with what he thought but from what I do understand of their dis- their differences as un- as authors and artists, the, the distinction between these two effects, I suppose, that you're describing is that infinite jest may be a shattered pane of glass, one that is, if you sit there and piece it together long enough, cohesive and coherent and cogent. Um... Mm-hmm. I would argue that Pynchon, and this may be what Wallace meant by irony, is trying to make the point that there is no piece of glass, that that to do that is always a foolish endeavor. And in some sense, you know, I think that there's an argument that that is a foolish thing for an artist to do. In some sense, you are analogizing yourself as God. And I think that's a lot of why Pynchon talks so much about Gnosticism um, in his works, besides the obvious, uh, but, but also I think he's trying to make the point, I'm limited, I'm here, I'm writing a book, this is just a book, I'm just trying to get, um, I'm just trying to make a world that you can believe. I don't necessarily mean that you're supposed to sit there and read that and perceive that message, but I think that there is that kind of lack of pretense behind his work. Not not to, you know, say infinite justice pretentious. How could I? <laughs> but, you know, I, I what I guess I'm trying to say is that it seems like while the shattered pane of glass is a beautiful work of art in and of itself, that doesn't mean that it's inherently a flaw to, for an artist to try and make a jigsaw puzzle that does not fit together. And I do think that is... Pinschen's um, constant attempt. And I think in this book he succeeds where he doesn't in others.
4: Yeah, I can't imagine I can't imagine Wallace ever saying the phrase this is just a book. Um, I have read some Wallace, so I might be onto something.
3: Yeah. I I I feel like i maybe lost track of a bit of which author you're referring to with which with each statement you're making there at the end, Will, but I I think to address i the the talk of wallace in relation to irony and the new sincerity movement and all of that i don't necessarily think that wallace was referring to a lot of late pinch on with his thoughts on postmodernism and the need for a new sincerity movement i think that i'm sure wallace read mason and dixon and i would imagine that wallace would not have grouped a book like mason and dixon into the into the earlier criticisms that he was making largely within the the essay um *E pluribus unum*. I think that they are certainly two different books in what they're exploring, definitely. And to 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 make sure to to clarify, the shattered paint of glass imagery was was what his editor referred to it as. I think that a lot of other people would also refer to the book someone as a jigsaw puzzle, but it does fit together at the end. But I don't I don't know if I agree with you that Mason and Dixon is a jigsaw puzzle that doesn't form cohesively or at least that that's not it, i don't think that was the intention in in Pinchon. I, I don't see anything in these pages that makes it seem like he is putting together a jigsaw puzzle that is intentionally not supposed to fit together i feel like the book is too cohesive for that to be something that he was trying to to do um i think it's just that there's there's too much book um and I don't, I don't know what the editing process for this book was like, obviously, or um, what the editing process maybe already removed. But it, it feels as though there, um, there's just too much on the, on the page here. That's that's kind of my my feeling about it. Sure, and I, I'm I,
2: I, just to try and clarify, um, I, what I was trying to say was that. Um... You know, the shattered pane of glass is a beautiful image for a book because, you know, it brings to mind the idea of being, of having this beautiful cohesive whole that can still be retrieved if you care long enough. But um, I I guess, to me, it seems like um, that's kind of the point, that your brain is going to do that. Your brain is going to create the story. Your brain is going to make the whole image and you can sit there and say well that doesn't fit in or that doesn't make sense but there's always going to be parts of reality or fiction that don't make sense that don't fit in because you are not god you are not the author you are a person who's witnessing it and trying to reconcile your own worldview with it and so you're always going to either say okay well this is broad expansive and I can't say one cohe- or coherent thing about it, or you're going to say, This means this thing. And if you try to split the difference, you're going to end up saying, This is trying to say this thing, but it also has all these random parts that are not doing that. And I think that throughout his entire oeuvre, and th- this is much more uh, something informed. Uh, by the rest of Pynchon's work, I do think that that is something that he is perpetually trying to convey. Um, mm. And that's not to dismiss the fact that your opinion is completely valid. Um, <laughs> he, as much as I joke about like loving every page, yeah. I don't love every page of this book. There There are issues, and I totally agree that there are scenes that could have been cut, or maybe should have been cut, or at the very least rearranged. Um... I just disagree that the ending doesn't serve a purpose, and I don't find the um, the, the frazzled edges of this book to be something indicative of flaw necessarily. And uh, just just to clarify, aside a, a tangent there, um, I, I I know that Wallace was not talking about later pension, uh, but I I honestly do think that after the most of most of his books are in this mode. It's not as clear, and his character development is definitely a lot stronger post his hiatus, but I do think that Gravity's Rainbow and Crying of Lot 49 have a ton of sincerity in them. I think that it's very hard to to read Gravity's Rainbow today and not see like a genuine love for humanity and a sincere, a sincere attempt to drive people towards change in in a, in a very active way, not not at all, kind of a, a a cynical sit back and laugh at the idiots that it was received initially.
3: Yeah, no, I I I, I agree with your point there. Like, I, I definitely think that Pinchon was criticizing the movement of postmodernism more so than than or I'm sorry, David Foster Wallace was criticizing the movement of postmodernism, and especially when it bled into television. Um, more so than he was Pinchon specifically. Like sure. it, it's it's very clear that that Pinchon was a huge influence on him. If you read his first novel, and if you just understand his his development as a as a writer, and I guess this is just really where where things like personal preference come into play, where there is no like objective. This is the correct opinion about any piece of art. Because um, yeah, I, I obviously everyone is going to read this book and have a different experience with it, and and connect with different elements of it you know you and i are experiencing that difference right now through this conversation um yeah and and so yeah I, th- I think it just illustrates the idea that there are multiple different ways to 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 read this book or any book and that some people are going to have different reactions to it than others um because yeah if, if that's something that you enjoy in his writing and that deliberate obscurity that is in his writing which i think is good and has been done in my opinion better in other pieces of his work then you're you're really gonna love all that stuff that's that exists within within the the broader pages of this novel. Um, and just to defend my opinion on the ending, I do believe the ending serves a purpose. I just think that it's misplaced as far as where it goes. Um, sure, <laughs> but, but yes, yeah. Sorry, Luke, I kind of cut you off there.
4: Oh, you're good. Um, so to go back to the jigsaw puzzle thing, one thing that did occur to me, not to push back on what you're saying too much, but Uh, Chapters 53 through 55, um, you know, if the book is a jigsaw puzzle of a horse, you know, those those chapters are like the woolly mammoth standing off in the corner or something like Um, there are there are some parts of this book that I think intentionally don't fit with the rest, Um, at least like there's some smaller parts, if that makes sense. um, Like. You know, like those those chapters, especially. You know, they're they're basically from the ghastly fop. They're from a completely different book. Um, I think those ones especially start, stuck out to me as, as ones that that don't necessarily fit with the rest. Um, which I, I don't know if I would have necessarily come up with that whole thing if if we hadn't been talking about a jigsaw puzzle
2: specifically. Um, but yeah yeah absolutely and I, I think the the truth is that i I have a ton of very crazy um interpretations of books in general and particularly this novel you know like <laughs> i I'm still trying to make the the uh the ampersand work okay it's gonna work somehow <laughs> i'm gonna shoehorn the structure of this novel into an ampersand, and those chapters are
3: gonna be that loop somehow. But I, I mean, think... just not, not to keep talking about Infinite Jest, but there's a there's a geometrical structure to that book as well. Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah,
2: and I really am just trying to really, you know, just to clarify for any any diehard fans of Wallace that are not already here. Um <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I'm not, I, I, I know I have not read his works outside of a couple of essays like *A e Pluribus Unum. I'm not trying to, to, to make strong statements about him, but I'm just trying to use his, the, the, the public discourse of him as a counterpoint. Um, I was curious what everybody thought about the character of Masculine at this point in time, because I, I, we've seen him basically at three separate, Instances and he's been a not a very different character in each time but he's represented different things definitely mm-hmm. and he's the only non-primary character to get such time devoted to his clothing and in particular in chapter 74 or 5 um i mean like the the clothing is described specifically as the those motif colors in Gravity's Rainbow and Vineland and his other works, the lime green and magenta.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: I mean, as a character, I think at this point in the book, Masculine is kind of revealed to be an over-earnest, like, kind of dummy. That's, I guess, the way that I would maybe describe him. Like, he's, he's he has some ability, certainly, to do the work of an astronomer otherwise he wouldn't be able to be one but i think it's also clear that he's been thrust into a an extraordinary position simply because of his familial ties and he's trying to do his best to somehow seem like he's worthy of that role and i think that comes out in weird ways in some instances like i'm going to put on this crazy wizard robe so that i can seem like i'm appropriately at my station or whatever Um. And I think that by the over earnest aspect, like he wants to have a relationship with with Mason and like sees himself as a mentor to Mason, even though that's definitely not the case and enforces Mason to go visit Dixon and all of that. So I think he I think he's a guy trying his best, even though he's out of his depth. And that just makes him kind of come across as as silly um, and far from the person that he'd like to be perceived as. That's kind of my opinion of him at this point um Which I think I think could certainly lend to the earlier descriptions of him from the beginning of the book, as is, is like, oh, he's crazy, he's a madman. um I mean, you you'd probably think that too if if you were like, oh, the head of this astronomical society just wears fucking wizard robes, like you would also probably think that that person was pretty crazy. So I think that yeah. potentially a lot of the reputation he's garnered is just the fact that he's potentially he's potentially been raised above his station and is trying to find a way to. To inhabit that, whether it was as a member of the Royal Society or as the Astronomer Royal, um, so in in that way, he's he's a bit of a tragic figure. Um, as to the coloration of the robes, I'd have to think more about that. I don't I, I don't have a specific answer that comes to mind.
1: Yeah,
0: yeah, uh, I think he's, I, I think he's just he's aloof. He he's he's fully capable of doing. His work and his his duties, but I, I think he just he envisions himself as as something, and that's not the way he actually like projects himself. Um, I, I think Kate summarized pretty much how I feel about him as well, and and Brett in his email um, that we'll get to later um, also kind of points some of that out. But it you know it, and I don't want to get too far ahead, but knowing what his observation outfit looks like kind of really opens that up a little bit more. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think he's, there is a bit of a, a tragic character dynamic to him. I think it, it's just, he, he really thinks that he is this, this character that in his mind is, is this really important and, um you know, sort of, larger than than life person but really he's like he's just he's just kind of a weirdo um and he's Mm -hmm. (laughs) he's well-intentioned i think at times i don't think he's i don't think he's ever really trying to to ruin mason i think he just doesn't understand um really the the impact of some of the things that he says and does Mm
1: mm-hmm
4: yeah, he doesn't seem to be the most self-aware character. Um, the word that comes to mind for me is probably doofus or a dingus. Um, yeah. Yeah, I don't know if I really have much to add other than that
2: uh, to what y'all have said because I
4: agree with it.
1: Yeah, to, to me, he's
2: he's almost come to form almost a, a kind of a a symbol of the the complete. Unintentionality of the mechanisms of control that are leading Mason and Dixon's lives. That, like, like you said, he he is like a well-meaning guy. He does think of. I see. Okay, this is something I forgot to bring up. I don't think that Masculine um, thinks of himself as a mentor to Mason. I do think, though, that he sees himself as like the younger brother who is, you know, who gets the world better,
1: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: and he's like trying to teach his. His older brother or his cousin like look you're so i respect you so much you're so close to being great at this here's just the one little thing that you need to adjust and the whole time it's you know fundamentally missing the point
1: mm-hmm.
2: um but really yeah i th- I see him as some sort of like 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 you said he's a nepo baby He he's there for the sake of you know East India Company's control, but he is a sincere astronomer. He does want to do all the things that a good astro- royal astronomer royal should want to do. Um, it's just it's interesting because he is the most solitary character. He doesn't have any attachments other than to the institution and to his brother-in-law, who isn't even you know, they're not close. You know, in the in the later scenes in Saint Helena, it's made pretty clear that. Clive does not hold Neville in very high regard mm-hmm. and Edmund his Neville's actual older brother doesn't spend much time with him that's that's made very clear in his second appearance too
0: Yeah that's I mean that's why he's the perfect person to put in that position he's Exactly he they they know that there's nothing tying him to anything else so he's not going to be concerned about you know family or friends or anything like that and he's not the type that's ever going to question anything that he's told to do. He's just going to do it. So he's he's perfect for that position.
2: And then I guess the the other um, character that I'd like to kind of bring up in Totem. Um, I'm sorry, I'll quiet down. Um, <laughs> the the other character that I'd like to revisit in, in in Yodem, in Totem is uh, Dixon, I guess. Because throughout the story, like like Lucas brought up, um he you know, he, he goes from being incredibly idealistic to being incredibly compromised and back and forth more than anybody else. And I, I think he's I think there's a lot to read into about his development of gout and the way that his you know, his libertine life has led to um, his own self-imprisonment essentially because the the whole end of his life as described in this book is about him trying to finish trying to get just a little bit more money so that he can afford for servants to take care of him and his wife in america which they will definitely move to one day
1: yeah that's a i, I hadn't thought about that but that's really smart i i I, yeah. like, I like how you've laid that out, Will. Yeah, I don't know that
0: I could really add anything to that. Um, I mean, no. Honestly, we could, we could do a whole episode just on Mason and Dixon as characters. Uh, we're not going to, but there, there's so much about them and their development throughout the story that they could really be picked apart and, and dissected. And Dixon, I, would, I mean, Mason, I think I mean, both of them have, have such interesting arcs. I think Dixon is, is a little more ambiguous, though. Um, I think, but I think that's also just due to the, the kind of natural internal conflict that's always present within him. So yeah, I don't, I don't know. I'd, I'd have to really think on that and, and have time to generate a good response to that.
2: Well, and then to be beyond that, I have a question for the listeners. Um, if, if any of you are familiar with, uh, uh, you know, society, a friend meeting house, rules, you know, standards, and I know that they're not, they're not the most uh, rule-making of types, but, you know, the general habits and behaviors around burial in such churchyards, because it seems to me very prescient, not prescient, <laughs> sorry, very, very salient that uh, he is all of these things, and, he is, and he, is a, he is a heretic, he does not believe in the Quaker worldview fully, about about eighty percent of it, but he is not a Quaker. He has been kicked out. He does not consider himself one fully. Um, it seems meaningful that he has been buried there. So if anybody is from a Quaker family or joined the society, please please let us know if you know about those details.
0: Yeah, that and, would definitely be interesting to know.
2: yeah, and further um the the astrological readings in this last chapter, I thought felt like they probably had a lot of meaning. I know nothing about astrology, so
1: I would love to hear it if anybody um, knows more and can connect any dots with it. Absolutely. So if anybody has details on that, please uh, shoot us an
0: email or or find some way to get in touch with us and let us know because I think that would definitely be uh, quite interesting. I wish I had done this last time with Lot 49 because um, I think it would have been fun too. I went through Goodreads and pulled some one-star reviews and I want to read oh. them to you all and get your, get your opinions on them. This is so
3: great.
0: This is, so here's the thing. Here's the through line I found in reading all of these and I will preface this by saying I'm not going to name any, any people's names on here. If you want to find them, go on Goodreads. They're all there. Um, the... There are two common elements in all of these. Um, The first being uh, reviews that start with, um, I consider myself a smart person, or I consider myself a good reader, blah, blah, blah. There's so many of those, and it's it's annoying. The other is people who admittedly did not finish the book, but still felt the need to review it and rate it, which we talked about earlier, uh, is a super annoying thing, and I hate when people do that. Um, Terrible. But... It's, it happens in here. So um, I pulled, I think there's like 10 of these. Uh, Most of them are pretty short, but I'm I'm just going to read through them and we'll, uh, we'll kind of pick them apart a little bit here and there. So first one, I like to think of myself as a reasonably intelligent person. So it is frustrating to come (laughs) across a book like this. Is this book beyond my capabilities or is it just not well-written? Pinchon is lauded as a genius in literary circles, I think, but not from where I sit. The style was practically unreadable and the story not well-told. Maybe it was some sort of academic exercise, but this does not equate with greatness, just an experiment. Why I picked up this book after suffering through Gravity's Rainbow is baffling, but I won't make the mistake again. I really need to learn that it is okay to put a book away if I don't enjoy it. This makes two of the worst books I have ever read coming in this year.
3: It sounds like my man just needs to read other authors. It doesn't doesn't sound like pinch-ons for him. (laughs)
0: I mean, they, they were right at the end, you know, it, it is okay to put a book down. I think if you, if you're not enjoying it, like mm-hmm. that's just my personal like yep. life's too short. You know, we're here for a certain amount of time. Like I don't have time to read books that I'm not into, so I will put them down. I'm not going to review those books cause I didn't finish them, but mm-hmm. you know, it is what it is. Um, <laughs> this next one, um, let me reiterate. These are all one star reviews. Um, 3.5, but Goodreads won't let me do that. So, and that's the end of it. So, they felt what? like 3.5 was where it landed,
2: wait, but wait, they wait, couldn't,
0: wait, wait. so they gave it one star.
2: <laughs> it's like when Amazon doesn't deliver the package and somebody reads the
0: exactly.
1: product.
3: <laughs> yeah, I didn't like the driver. He just threw so my weird. box
0: up on the, on the porch. One star.
3: That's so weird.
0: The next one, uh, the story of Charles Mason, the astronomer, and Jeremiah Dixon, the surveyor, has fascinated me for decades. Several times I've taken long detours during road trips to visit the Stargazer Stone uh, in Embryville, Pennsylvania. Even though it's officially the Stargazer Stone, according to the National Register of Historic Places, I maintain that only Mason was the astronomer, and therefore the stone was Mason's. The story is significant. Because it demonstrates the tremendous value and importance of the earliest Americans, uh, sorry, the tremendous value and importance the earliest Americans placed on private property rights, among other things. Therefore, I attempted to read this book twice. The first time was shortly after publication, and the second after seeing Mark Knopfler perform it live in Royal Albert Hall. I will jump in and clarify: Mark Knopfler wrote one song about the book, not a whole album, uh, and the song is okay at best, in my opinion. Um, Anyways, back to the review.
2: Whole album. Yeah. Not a fan, uh, of that would have been awesome.
0: It would have, yeah. Uh, both attempts were abandoned halfway through. My frustration with the author is that he ignores many known facts. Both Mason and Dixon kept journals and substitutes imaginary characters. Why invent a Reverend Cherry Cook when you already have a Calvert family? A work of historical fiction should emphasize known facts and only rely on the fictionalized aspect to fill in dialogue or areas required to make the work coherent. Penchon plays fast and loose with facts, often ignoring them in favor of conspiracy theories, UFOs, even feng shui. No matter how beautifully Penchon writes, the book isn't the work it masquerades as. Luckily for Penchon, well respected critics gave it glowing reviews, leading those who followed to repeat the praise in, in limbing like fashion. I see it as a classic case of the emperor having no clothes. If you're looking for beautiful <laughs> prose fiction, there's always Shakespeare. If you're looking for a historical novel, don't bother with Penchon. If you want a historical book that doesn't have fictional stuff, read a textbook, read a non-fiction book historical. It's, it, it's in the, it's in the name. It's historical fiction. I, that one just drove also, me up a wall.
3: I also really love the, if you want to read beautiful prose fiction, read Shakespeare. That's not the same thing <laughs> yeah. that that's he's, he's not, he's writing plays and poetry. He's not writing regular, which is, Novel prose—that's crazy. I mean, like, again, it just seems like this is another case where it's like, do you not know the author that you're that you're choosing to pick up?
2: Like, it's it's, one—it's one thing to not know the author that you're choosing to pick up, but in this book, like, it'd be one thing if it was the crying of Lot Forty Nine, and this was some of their criticism. Although it wouldn't make very much sense. But like this book directly speaks to the reader and, like, says, hey, history is what you make it. That's the value (laughs) of storytelling. That's the point of this book. Like, how how, can... I don't like to say this, but you just missed the point.
3: Yeah, no, that read the did. And you didn't read it. And, like, those... And it's, it's not even necessarily those criticisms that he has of some historical fiction are fine. Like some of his criticisms, there were the same that I had for Colson Whitehead's underground railroad. Um, But it it doesn't, it doesn't work for a book like Mason Dixon. All
0: right, next one Uh, here. And here we go again. I consider myself pretty literate and well-educated. That said, this book was still a challenging slog for me. I felt like I quote got only some of the literati references that litter every page of this book. Unlike E.G. Saramago, whose run-on sentence slash paragraph style can be challenging and off-putting, but gradually becomes familiar and easier as you go, this work continued to be just that. WORK, that's in all caps. And I guess I'm, not just, I'm just not prepared to work that hard for a piece of fiction, and a long piece of fiction it was.
1: My
4: main problem with that review is, like, why is the word literati in there?
3: Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's a weird one. There's, that one—that's why I pulled absolutely... it.
1: Cause...
2: Yeah, most of the I don't references. Know he knows what that word means. Most of the references on the pages are like to historical or modern pop culture stuff, mm-hmm. and right. the the only like quote unquote literati type things are you know vague allusions that you have to have like read the other works to catch, let alone
3: you know recognize. You know what I hated about Mason and Dixon? It had too much Harold Bloom in it.
2: (laughs) Too much Sontag.
3: Yeah. (laughs) All
0: right, next one. Incomprehensible drivel. Both of those words are capitalized. Sure. (laughs) I was really looking forward to this book. 700 plus pages of history that directly related to my family. 30 some odd pages into it, I was so frustrated that I grew angry. I tried to find out who this person was related to, but I couldn't. I had to finish it, but resorted to scanning the text for references to my seventh great grandfather. After all that, only two references. After all that, only two references, and I had to get through more than six hundred pages to get to the story of his encounter with Mason and Dixon. Geez, I have never been relieved so relieved to have finished a book. So it's someone at the end of the book that they're related to. I'm not sure who, because like I said, I went to their profile and I couldn't pull anything that would tie them to anybody but
2: I, his I, his is it they're the there's the is it the rice family or whatever that, that he renames
0: i think that's before okay. that long into it though 600 pages is that's towards the end of america
3: yeah maybe he's related to the werebeaver. <laughs> Or That's, maybe he's maybe he's related to one of the people in the peat bog that Mason goes to yeah, work at. For sure, and
0: <laughs> also like even. again, you mentioned they mentioned in here they resort to scanning the text for references and then they have the audacity to say that they finished it. Like you didn't you you yeah. scanned through six hundred pages of it.
3: Yeah, I barely read this book. Uh, yeah. I didn't like it.
0: <laughs> yeah.
2: All That's, right. I mean, it, realistically, it's fine to come to a book like this and hate it. And I th- I think the real sure. issue here is that Goodreads positions yeah. itself as two things at once, both a like consumer review site as well as a personal recommendation a- engine. And so, yeah, for that person, giving Mason and Dixon one star probably makes a lot of sense. For the rest of the world, it's nonsensical. Yeah. <laughs>
3: One of the other things, too, Co- Cody, just um, if you also look at three star Goodreads reviews, those can be some of the most entertaining as well, because oh, yeah. it will either it will either be people who like. Have substantive criticism as to why it's three stars, and in which case, like, don't read those ones, but it's also some people who are just like, I didn't understand any of this, but I guess it was well put together. Like it's just some, some of the people who, who who rate stuff as as three star can be be as funny as one
0: stars i should have gone through some of those too all right here's the next one i may make another attempt with this but didn't get much past page 40 first of all this book was just too damn heavy i really just did not want to carry it anywhere even holding it on my lap in bed was uncomfortable i got about 40 pages in mason and dixon had just been introduced and seemed interesting and amusing but not people who could sustain another 750 pages but the dialect was killing me. I just couldn't adapt to it, just not for me. Now, I do want to point out, I've, I fact-checked this. If, if Discounting Mason's letter that, that occurs on, like, page 12, they come in on page 14. Yeah. So I don't know where this person's getting they didn't come in until 40 pages in, but that's absolutely not the case.
3: Maybe he thought that the captain of the seahorse was Mason and Dixon. Maybe. But also, like... It's too. That's heavy. also not you, page forty. You bought 40 it. You <laughs> bought the book. Like, what are you talking about? Also, I also assume that this that this review was written at least in this decade, which means that like it, the Kindles exist. Like, right. you can also I, just I get, get an e-book.
0: I, I get like books can be big and cumbersome and heavy. I, I absolutely understand that. Yeah, but you should you if you go to a bookstore, you can see it. If you're buying it online, it tells you. I, I know Amazon gives dimensions and weight, so you it's should okay know. Up. Like I don't know.
2: Yeah, I, speaking as somebody with um, carpal tunnel issues, that doesn't feel like a good reason to rate a book poorly. Yeah. Right. I mean, again, that
0: goes back to the Amazon packaging
2: thing. Exactly. That's exactly what I was going to say.
3: I hate this t shirt because I accidentally bought the wrong size. This T-shirt is low quality because I bought the wrong size.
0: I put this thing together wrong, so I, I don't like it. One star. This,
3: this yeah. doctor's
2: office burned down. One star.
0: Um, here's a short one. Totally unfair. Oh, God damn it. I forgot about this. Totally unfair for me to give this a rating because I couldn't finish it. I couldn't even come close. And I finish everything, all caps. I mean you just said it's unfair to give it a rating (laughs) I I just the gall of some people
3: I don't think any of these people realize that there is a feature on Goodreads where you can create an exclusive shelf where books can only be put in that shelf and you could just name that did not finish and then you can Mm -hmm. just leave them there (laughs) yeah clearly not
0: StoryGraph has a DNF feature on it that I like but I don't think Goodreads does.
3: It, they do not.
0: I've got a, f- a few more, and I saved the best one for last. So, um, Have I ever been so excited to be done with a book? Can I really claim to have quote-unquote read it at all, given how much of it went over my head and how often I spaced out? Not sure about the right answers to either of these questions, but I can tell you that I've got a couple other penchons on my to-read list, and I am definitely rethinking. I am old-fashioned. I like novels to have plots. Okay. This Ah. one doesn't really. Also, I don't love sci-fi, fantasy, or quote-unquote real ghost stories. So a book that features a sentient animatronic duck, a talking dog, and a frequently visiting dead wife is probably a bit much for my abilities vis-a-vis suspension of disbelief. Finally, I couldn't help but notice that every one of the quotes for quote unquote praise of Mason and Dixon in my edition were quotes from men, some of whom have themselves written books that I found rather tedious. Definitely shelved next to Infinite Jest on my bookshelf of doorstop, boy, doorstop books boys really seem to like that I think are kind of annoying. Just kidding, I have limited bookshelf space. I'd never keep either of those books around for future use. Isn't the
3: largest quote on most editions from Michiko Kakutani. Yeah,
0: I was about to say that's it. on the back cover. that's
1: the, the, <laughs> There are two quotes, and one of them is hers.
3: <sighs> that's yeah, that's that's
2: yeah. weird. Well, okay, the on the inner quote page All of them are male, to be fair.
0: those are, yes, I did look at that. So I, I, something of an argument understand. to be made there.
2: But of the Perhaps two main featured
0: reviews, I mean, yeah, yeah.
2: But I that that gets to one of my one of the most annoying criticisms of books like this, and it comes down to a dismissal based on you know assumption that the only reason you would read it is for like props or something. Clout, would, yeah. Which they they have not stated, right. so maybe it's not fair to 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 blame them for this. But I think it's pretty pretty heavily implied it's just stupid because like Mm -hmm. who the fuck
3: cares that i read this book like seriously no you may be approaching this too rationally uh (laughs) i think that there is a good chunk of people who do do that no they're being they're being
1: irrational (laughs) it's just amazing It it is it is the fact that you because like you know my
3: favorite book is Infinite Jazz. so like that is one and he talks it or this person talks about it in their review like that that is definitely a book that many people have read just for the clout of saying they've read yeah. Infinite Jazz. Yeah.
0: It especially exists I think more so now in the in the BookTube and and Book Talk era um, where you have these the the people who will will read a book or claim they read a, a book yeah just so they can say they read it which I think is. A waste of time like I get reading a book because you're interested in it or because a lot of people are talking about it and then whether you like it or not fine but I don't think you should read a book just because you want to be able to brag about having read said book
2: Mm -hmm. yeah Yeah, if, if I'm completely honest I would rather never share to anybody that Pynchon is one of my favorite authors like to me that seems like a really good way to get yourself like preemptively kicked out of social clubs
3: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Every, every yeah. time I'm on a date with somebody and they're like, who's, who's your favorite author? Like, wh- what's your favorite book? And I have to say, David Foster Wallace, I have to preface it with like, I'm not a pretentious person,
1: but it's <laughs> like,
3: <laughs> there are certain yeah. authors where that is absolutely just the reputation that they have garnered, unfortunately. Well,
0: it's, it's, a, it's a binary thing because it's either that or the other reaction is who? And yeah. then there's just yes. nowhere to go yeah. with the conversation.
2: And honestly, that's fine.
0: Yeah, I'd rather it be, I'd rather it be that. Like, oh, like, eh, go find their books.
2: The, this, the most outrageous part of it to me is that, again, speaking as the youth here, um, it's, it's, <laughs> I, I get the sense that that's much more of a kind of y'all's generation thing, much more of a, like a late Gen X, early millennial phenomenon of, um, you know, reading big books for the clout. Mm -hmm. Not to say that people don't still do it, but I don't know anybody who has. Like, it's not a thing anymore. There is not the guy walking around with infinite jest or gravity's rainbow tucked under his arm at universities. It just isn't a thing. For so many reasons. But at this point, it's a completely dead cliché.
0: I mean, that's a good thing, I I would think. So Oh, no,
2: absolutely. Yeah, at but, least we're moving yeah. in the right direction. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> I, I do think, let let me make this clear. Um, those people can go, like, dig themselves a hole and sit there until they've learned their lesson about, you know, getting too high up their own asses. But mm-hmm. could could the people who hate those people recognize that they have mostly learned their lesson already? or they don't exist anymore, they're not getting made anymore, because, you know, my entire life, it's it really seemed like reading big books was the surest way to get yourself excised from social circles.
3: Okay, well, I think that still is the case. I don't know if there's going to be reform for that. Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, I feel like there still is a... Uh... I mean, I think that with the, the rapid expansion of social media and the internet, it's easier to find people who aren't like that online. But I still feel like, unfortunately, yeah. the bit um, from Bill Hicks about why are you reading? Ooh, is still what are certainly, you
1: reading for? What are you reading um,
3: for? Yeah. <laughs> what are you yeah. reading for is still certainly kind of what the yeah. broader public is like.
0: I, yeah. I would agree.
3: Fundamentally, there are
2: two people I know who have read Infinite Jest and love it. You and a middle-aged mother who teaches remedial English courses primarily English and literature courses. Like y'all are not the cliche in the least bit. And yeah, well, you know, so
3: we're both women, which is also not yeah, necessarily yeah. the cliche. But Wallace
2: exactly. <laughs> and that, but you know that alone, combined with the fact that growing up, it's like, oh, you read long books what's wrong with you i just don't get this continuation of the meme
0: yeah
1: no i don't get it either
0: all right two more um and again i'm saving the best for last so here's the second our our oh, penultimate Jesus, really? uh, bad one yeah tr- oh trust me um all right so here's this one Ugh, I was so disappointed with this book, I didn't even last 20 pages. I was defeated by the archaic style, parentheses, capital letters in the middle of sentences drive me nuts. What are proper nouns? I mean, I don't—anyway. I, and the talking dog, parentheses again, seriously, who thought that was a good idea? Uh, a pity because I was really interested in the history behind Mason and Dixon.
3: It really seems like a lot of these people thought this was like a straightforward historical fiction novel.
0: I, I get the impression that that's the case, but it, capital letters in the middle of sentences drive me nuts. Like, I genuinely don't—I get—if you want to make an argument about the, the writing style, that's fine, but capital letters exist in the middle of sentences in every book. That's—I don't—it's just a poorly written complaint.
3: Is it Maybe that person just it, has says OCD?
0: Is yeah. it
2: Dasha Dernitch who doesn't do that in her... <laughs> it just doesn't capitalize anything? That's the <laughs> thing now. There, there are some authors for that person.
0: I see that in poetry maybe, maybe more than person, I've ever seen that in, in...
3: Yeah, that's that's a good point. Maybe this person just needs to read, like, Duck's Newberry Report. Just be like, hey, this is all one sentence.
0: <laughs> all right, and here it is, guys. This is the... Uh... And this, ironically, was, the, was genuinely the last one-star review, like, going scrolling through them all. This was the final one, so it worked out perfectly. Uh, the review itself reads, Fulla, and that's F-U-L-L-A, Fulla post Faulkner sentences that are stupidly obtuse, pointing toward empty epiphanies and a bunch of nothing. Now, before anybody says anything, this reviewer is also an author whose bio on Goodreads states, Quote, I grew up hearing the sound of construction work, hammers and saws, dogs barking, birds singing, outlaw country music, Uh. beers being opened and uncles yelling over bad engines being revved to figure out the problem. Then I went to university. After years of being an art critic, I've returned to my roots, writing apocalyptica in various forms with Pinchon plots and Hemingway sentences. Please buy all my books and review them favorably here and on Amazon. Read my blog. Let's be friends. Hard pass on that one. Hard pass. <laughs> In addition to what? that, I went on this guy's page, and he also gave one-star review to Vineland, saying, quote, Penchon can write great novels, but he's, uh, here he's unable to focus on anything. Inherent Vice, one star. Quote, some Penchon novels suck. Bleeding Edge, one star. The most underrated Pencan novel, period. About 9-11, period. Oh, he gave that five stars. I'm sorry.
2: Oh, okay. <laughs>
1: Yeah. Okay, I was going to
2: say what the hell?
0: I sorry, I put that afterwards. Yeah. So
2: because yeah, I was, I was getting worried about this guy's genuine health.
0: And he gave <laughs> I think slow learning was 2 stars. So he dislike vehemently dislikes a third of his work. And yet claims that he is influenced by his work and I don't know. That one just blew my mind.
1: I can wow.
2: understand that, I guess, but like Gee, I mean, okay, I get what they're going for, but honestly, go fuck yourself with the Sound and the Fury reference. <laughs> like, I don't—your I don't, yeah. actual opinion, you know, it's your life. Um, Fuck yourself for that. That's way too pretentious.
3: But also to claim that sentences are too long and then to reference Hemingway as a person yeah. you're inspired by in writing sentences— yeah. That boy has page and a half long sentences in "For Whom the Bell Tolls" and many other yep. works of his own. That I, some of that reads almost like he's trolling the internet.
0: It really, yeah. it really um, felt like that.
2: Yeah, I mean, look, if if this is the kind of guy who apparently thinks being a Pynchon fan means reading "Gravity's Rainbow," then it's clear that for him, Ernest Hemingway wrote. Um, the sun also
1: rises and the old man in the sea. And that's all. Yeah. That's it. That's all you got. Um, I did see there was
3: yeah. one
0: other one that I was going to pull, but it was way too long. But the, the person complained about, uh, she, she said there were sentences in the book that went on for entire pages or entire chapters, which I, there were long sentences, but I don't, I mean, gravity's rainbow arguably had longer Sentences than anything in Mason and Dixon, um, and there definitely was no page-long sentences that I can recall.
2: Not that I can remember either. There's no, there's like one or two, but they're very, they're very much in the same mode as his bio there,
1: mm-hmm.
2: which I think is your point.
1: Yeah.
0: So that's yeah, that's the one-star uh, reviews for these. So I, I plan on doing this for the other books as well, but. I wish we that's for wild. 59. I'm sure there was.
1: That, that was a great segment, Cody. Thank you.
0: So before we, uh, finish up with the book and talk about, well, I say talk about, but mention our, our next book, uh, and our plans for the immediate future, we did get our final email from Brett, uh, regarding, the book and specifically the, the last section of the book. So Kate, would you like to go ahead and read through that?
3: Absolutely. Hello all crazy to have reached the end of the book. I will miss writing these notes about Mason and Dixon. I'll certainly keep folks posted on the companion and you're welcome to share this email address with listeners. If they want to reach out, it's a lot of fun talking about this book. Love this week's episode. Again, a few historical notes to add to the conversation. One, one, I think i've mentioned this detail a few times but i find it so compelling that it's worth writing again page 762 mentions mason senior's will here's the exact quote from the very real historical document the levels of passive aggressiveness are beyond even my midwestern ability to comprehend and let me just prepare the listener for a second because i wasn't prepared for what followed after this when i first read brett's email it's pretty insane like it's hard to believe that somebody in the 1700s would behave this way quote i give and forgive my son charles mason the sum of 10 pounds of good and lawful money of great britain which he do and lawfully owes me for the following particulars viz bread malt and timber i give to my above son charles mason one shilling equal to 851 in modern currency To be paid by my executors. Two. I am very interested in the role of masculine in this section, so I was glad to hear so much talk about him. I think I found him portrayed a bit more sympathetically in these chapters. He genuinely thinks he's being kind to Mason by offering the chance to do the measurements at, I'm not going to butcher that pronunciation, in Scotland. Maybe this is misguided or patronizing, but this section definitely shows masculine on the outs with the Royal Society too. The stuff about, quote, men of science, and quote, macaronis, references a very real divide in the Royal Society at the time, with Masculine actively opposing Joseph Banks, then president of the society, and makes the point in Gravity's Rainbow about that, yeah, and makes the point that Gravity's Rainbow makes about pointsman once or twice. Even the people who seem like they're in charge are further from power than we think. Real power is a system, and it only makes us feel better to think that there's some individual wizard pulling the strings. Masculine is a convenient wizard, especially since the real Neville Masculine was known to wear an ostentatious observing suit. If you Google it, you'll see what I mean. Three, the experiment in Scotland is also thematically important to the novel. Henry Cavendish was a guy heavily involved in calculating the density of the Earth. He hypothesized that the Allegheny Mountains were going to throw off the accuracy of the Mason-Dixon line. He was right. I think part of Masculine offering Mason the chance to do the work there in Scotland was the idea that Mason could better understand the source of this error. Either that, or else Masculine is twisting the knife. Mason, of course, refuses, and Masculine works in Scotland himself, even though Mason selected the location, which was perfect because it's both isolated and regularly shaped, meaning it's easier to determine its gravitational impact on one's instruments. By all accounts, Masculine was well-received in Scotland when the experiment was successfully completed, thereby providing an estimate of Earth's density from which you could estimate its mass there was a big party apparently the observatory burned down in the revelry there's also this once you know the earth's density you can prove it's not hollow the name of the town in scotland is scottish for goodbye hollow earth not literally i'm just trying to be funny <laughs> <laughs> or i love the conversation about the end of the book and maybe it's relative weakness in certain ways i'm not sure i agree I'm probably too close to the material in this moment to have a valuable opinion, but it does bring up some great questions. I wanted to share two sources. One is a letter Mary Mason wrote to George Washington, detailing just how bad things were for the family as Charles lived out his last days and after his death. It's always possible she's amplifying the squalor to make her request for money more persuasive, but Pinchon definitely draws from her description. The second is a letter Mason himself wrote to Benjamin Franklin during his last days. He really does make mention of a machine that would be useful for astronomical purposes. He writes, the expense of putting it in execution would be very trifling. I do hereby send you a plan of the design. Could he could be he's also trying to sell something here, but Pinchon takes that idea and has Mason deliver the wonderful summation Kate read aloud, trying together, tying together the themes of the book, the stuff about violence and history, and America is ever running towards some great abyss. I think Pinchon found this archival material and just felt it had to be included, which took the novel past the death of Dixon by nearly a decade. As a writer, I'm really interested in the way the source material gets transformed here, and I hear the argument that maybe taking the novel so far beyond that point was too much of an exercise in completism. I don't think I feel that way because I think the stuff about Mason's death pays off thematically and shows a big move for his character, but I was thinking about that question a lot and going back over those final chapters. Just a great way to end a great discussion of a great book. He then gave us links to Mary Mason's letter as well as Charles Mason's letter, which we can include in our show notes for you all, um, and then Cody himself looked up the outfit that Masculine was known for wearing, <laughs> and um, it, it it is... It looks like it's made out of corduroy in the sense that it is just a bunch of like vertical lines that are stitched into or, or inherently part of the construction of this outfit, and it is buttoned extremely over to the right hand side of it and there's a pocket where it flares out by the waist which is crazy
1: got and the uh,
3: yeah it's got tails and then the actual fabric around the wrists is flared and cut at a strange angle and then the pants are the same material in the same weird autumn Leaf color orange is the best way that I can describe it, but they also have booties. Like it's it's it goes <laughs> all the way down part. over the over the feet, like children's pajamas. Yeah, um, for, for for
2: any it's... fellow youths here, what it looks like is exactly <laughs> like a, a, a goldenrod reddish version of Tingle's outfit from the Legend. Oh of Zelda. my god, it's disturbingly Oh man. It's horrible. Like I can't imagine an important person wearing this thing and taking himself seriously, which he clearly (laughs) did. Yep.
1: Yeah.
3: So thank you for all of your emails over the course of this whole discussion, Brett. You know we've said it many times over the past couple episodes, but it has been instrumental to everything that we've discussed and talked about. Mm -hmm. Having a a a foremost scholarly recognized source um, has certainly been a A massive benefit to us all um so thank you for for one last email um and for including that bit from the will because holy shit um, that is a a father choosing then to forgive the debts that he had apparently been tracking for his own child um and also giving him less than ten dollars is is pretty crazy
0: (laughs) yeah i read that it made me think of pierce hawthorne's dad on community that's the kind of shit that he would Yeah,
3: call. yeah. <laughs> it's, it's just remarkable how much he clearly hated his son.
0: It really... It's depressing. Yeah. It's so bad.
3: And You really hope that that was an invention of Pinchon. So to have historical sources yeah. from that is tragic.
0: All right. So that is... That's it for Mason and Dixon, y'all. We, it, five months almost to the day that, that we uh, started this. And, and it's been a really fun journey. I've really enjoyed going through this with you guys, uh, but I am glad that we're able to move on. Um, So just to kind of get a little preface here, we are going to take a break. I think we all agree that we have earned a good break. Um, So we are going to take about a month off. Now we will still have some stuff that comes out. We're going to do some uh, kind of bonus episode stuff that we'll release on a weekly basis, but um, we will not be back with our next book until November 12th tentatively. That may change and we'll put up something on social media if that does change. Um, But just know that we will take a nice little break before going into our
2: next book, which will be a transatlantic tunnel. Hurrah by Harry Harrison. (laughs) (laughs) Two books in we're done with Pinshot. We're done with Pinchon. We're On to transatlantic tunnels. There were too
0: many capital letters in the sentences. It was too Mm -hmm. long and tedious. So we're moving on to... just kind of glossed
3: over everything. Yeah, I spaced out. I lost track.
0: I gave up around chapter five, guys. I've just been faking it the whole time.
3: I've been making up my observations for four months.
0: (laughs) (laughs) No, our, our next book will be Vineland. So... Uh, I know a lot of people uh, have asked us to do that, um, and I think we're all pretty excited to do that. It's one that, like Mason and Dixon, doesn't really get a lot of coverage, and I think also within the the community itself kind of gets dunked on a lot, undeservedly so. I, I've i read it a couple times, and I absolutely love it, um, so I'm looking forward to really going through and, and doing what we did with Mason and Dixon in Lot 49 and really examining everything we can about it. So,
3: Yes. I am also looking forward to that. It's unfairly hated on. I know that's most right. of our listeners are on the, on the Reddit and I know a lot of you make these, these, these arguments on the Reddit. Stop yep. being, being yep. the Vine land.
1: <laughs> it's <laughs> way better
0: than you guys give it credit for. Yeah. Yeah. Addis. Let's, let's, let's go with this thing.
2: It's, it's, it's a very, it's an interesting book. And if you can't see that, that's your fault. <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right. So, um, like I said, we'll, we'll have some bonus stuff that comes out uh, covering different non-pinch on things over the next month, and then we'll be back in a month to talk about Vineland. So thank you all so much for those of you who have stuck around through all of Mason and Dixon, or if you're just starting with it. Um, we really appreciate you taking the time to join us on these deep dives, and, and we hope that you'll join us in Vineland as well. So we'll
1: see you all in a month. Bye. See ya. Hi. That was absolutely not what I was expecting. When I absolutely loved it, that was so good. Good.
4: <laughs> like I said, I've seen that book like at least three times in the last like really? few weeks. Like I've seen it so much. Huh? I don't know why. I haven't seen that particular...
0: I never find any Harry Harrison at half price when I go there. And I, like I said, yeah. a, the only one I've read was Bill the uh, Galactic Hero. Um, but I've heard good things about like Stainless Steel Rat and some of his other stuff.
4: Yeah, I've bought... I've buy, a two buy book? of books? I did not. Um, I'm trying to control myself. I, I, I've been going overboard with buying books, and I'm running out of shelf Dude, space. Me too.
0: I've got books piled up on my floor right now.
4: Yeah, I do too, actually.
3: My problem except for with records... <laughs>
0: Yeah, I, I had that problem a long time ago, and that got way out of
1: hand. But I bought bigger shelves and solved that problem. I don't have a bigger bookshelf right now. <laughs> I'm looking it up. I want to see how, it's, how well it's rated.
0: Transatlantic Tunnel.
1: A transatlantic Tunnel, hurrah!
0: Oh, the cover on StoryGraph is much more boring. It's just like a yellow 3.26. That's not terrible.
3: That's a 3.45 on Goodreads.
0: Victorian flavored, but not unreadable like a lot of steampunk. That's a three-star review.
3: But not unreadable cool. like a lot of steampunk.
0: There's also a review on here that just says restarted semicolon California vacation. I don't
3: know what any of that.
2: <laughs> That's someone who's only using it for a personal record keeping yeah. system.
1: <laughs> Has to be Oh my god. Uh, California vacation.
2: So I started reading um an an academic book actually a couple days ago um oh. pension, sex and gender. Okay. It's it's um so far, I'm, I'm about a fifth of the way through. It's it's got some very interesting takes on his whole, all of his works. It seems like uh, a pretty important essay is one that centers on Bleeding Edge, which I am not surprised by. But as a result, mm-hmm. um, I have not I, I have kept myself from reading that one because as much as you know, spoilers are nonsense for Pynchon, I'd rather not, you know go into it with such a strong sense of
1: things but yeah recommended where did you get a copy of it from that sounds really interesting
3: not legally mm. oh okay is it the is it the film magnolia that you're talking about Cody?
0: <laughs> no i could oh boy i could go on i love that movie so much that was one of those movies that i watched at like the right time in my life and it it I, I have a lot of personal connection to it, so um mm-hmm. it's it's a flawed film, no doubt uh but it's one of my absolute favorites
2: see i was I, one of the things I flip flopped on was maybe doing um Punch drunk love My
0: God, I love that movie so much
2: It's such a, it's a great movie film
0: mm-hmm. I saw that, and again, that's another one that I saw at the right I could trace back uh Magnolia punch drunk love and eternal sunshine as like being seen by me at pivotal points in my life. So I have very deep personal connections to all three of those films.
3: It's also one of two good Adam Sandler performances.
0: I'm curious to know what the other one is now. More <laughs> I, I will staunchly defend happy Gilmore and Billy Madison. I absolutely
3: love I those movies. They're stupid beyond can't, belief. Can't get I there. Them. So
0: yeah, what's the other one?
3: I, it. I would say the other one is Uncut Gems.
0: Okay, I still haven't seen that. I need to.
2: Um, so he, I mean, okay, this—it's not a good movie. It's not bad, but there was a there was a sports film where he played a an agent.
1: Oh, to get
2: get this like African guy into uh, American hmm. basketball. What the hell um, was the name of it? Or South American guy. Um, it was pretty good. Not great. It was a pretty standard like mid-market sports movie. And he was really good, though. Like, I can't fault him at all.
0: He's he's like, it's the same with Jim Carrey. Like, he's one of those people that you would think watching their early work, like there's no way they could do a, a good, like, actual film. But they, they genuinely have it in them to to make something good.
2: It was called Hustle, which is yes, generic. Yes, I know that
0: one. I haven't, I haven't even thought about that movie in a long time.
2: Because it's not very good. It's again not bad, but (laughs) like, why would you think about it? Oh my god, this is from last year. Yes, I've never already already forgot about it entirely.
0: Man, I'm pushing forty. I forget about a lot of things real quick nowadays. (laughs) Unless they occurred at a very specific point in my life, it's it doesn't stick well with me anymore. I have to really put the effort in to make it. Um, and Foster's in this
3: movie
0: I'm looking through his Movies here Yeah, uh, Rain Over Me wasn't bad That was I remember watching that and liking it when I saw it I don't know if I'd still like it but Funny People wasn't bad
1: Yeah it, Oh come on Cody That movie's not good
0: <laughs> it's, I, it's not bad I didn't say it was good It's just not terrible
3: <laughs>
2: And it, yeah, it it is like Jim Carrey, except less obvious talent, I guess, in terms of Adam Sandler. Yeah, I mean, he just spent so long, kind of like Nick Cage, giving no shits about his reputation, and so he just took anything that paid for so long. It's so yeah, it's so annoying to. But to Nick like, Cage try has to, to do those that. People nick
0: cage bought no, dinosaur bones so he has he didn't to have,
2: he didn't have to buy the dinosaur bones from a dictator i'm gonna say <laughs> he, that
1: you weren't you know,
2: there hot take. he had to
3: i feel like maybe if you'd lived nicholas cage's life up until the opportunity to purchase dinosaur bones from a dictator came up you would also buy <laughs> dinosaur bones from a dictator
2: i would not deny that fact <laughs> but i am not
3: nicholas cage <laughs> and i relish that fact Oh, man. Probably the same way that you would also get a burial pyramid in New Orleans that was Uh repossessed by the IRS.
0: Who hasn't had that thought?
3: One of my favorite death death metal bands has that pyramid on the back of their album
2: cover. Do they really? I've seen that pyramid. It's absurd. It's like four times the size of the other mausoleums. That's Uh, the thing about it. If
1: it were just a pyramid, it would be fine. But it's huge. Oh, Nicolas Cage! Yeah, do I a shall defend man. until I die. I'm okay with people defending Nicolas Cage. Yeah, I, he's I don't know. Like actually, actually, a good actor.
0: He genuinely can be like even when he's over the top, he can still. I mean, he. I think some of those over the top performances really work to his benefit.
2: Yeah, I mean, yeah. seriously, if you can do high in raising Arizona and the main character in Pig. You you are a talented guy. There's no denying that. Wait, he does do a fuck? pretty good Elvis <laughs> impression.
3: Nicholas Cage was in an adaptation of John Williams Butcher's Crossing
1: last year? Yeah, I forgot about that. I heard it was alright. That's crazy. Yes. I didn't even know they were I adapting forget. that book. I forget how many movies this man has made. I need to watch Wild at Heart again. That was a good movie. It's okay. It's not Lynch's best, but. No. And Breaking Out the Dead, too. I forgot about that one. Eight Millimeter. Jesus.
0: Eight Millimeter was something else. That was a movie that could have been. And I don't know, in anybody not Jules Schumacher's hands could have been good.
3: <laughs> True enough. Have you seen, have you seen Joe, Cody?
1: Um, have I, seen, uh, I have to hold
0: on. Let me pull it up because I have I've to look at Joe it. I've seen Joe Dirt. I have, I have not seen Joe Dirt, <laughs> thankfully. I know the one you're talking about. I have not seen Joe, no.
3: It's it's that is if you're looking for like another Nicolas Cage movie to watch to just be like, damn, he's actually real good. uh, That would be one that I would recommend. Okay. I think one of my favorite memories I've ever had was going to go see Bangkok Dangerous in the theater. um, Which is not a good movie. And me and my friend that I was with knew that it wasn't going to be a good movie. But when we went up to the ticket counter and went, yeah, two tickets for Bangkok Dangerous. He, the guy that was behind the counter <laughs> Pulled a walkie talkie from underneath Like his podium thing and he literally Spoke into it you're gonna need to Turn the projector on we have two People oh here <laughs> <God>. <laughs> 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 Have any of you
4: all seen uh, bad lieutenant Port of call New Orleans I, I got have, like oh, yeah. 20 minutes into It and couldn't couldn't keep going with it I love that movie That movie is great Luke yeah,
0: I need to go watch it again. So it wasn't a, I didn't stop watching it because I was not enjoying it. I, that was one that I was like, I th- think at that time I was having a lot of trouble sleeping, and so I was like super tired when I was trying to watch it, and I fell asleep, and I just never picked it back up. That's one with Eva Mendes, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Okay, that's what I'm thinking of then.
3: And that that was a case where. Uh... The the director specifically asked Nicholas Cage to be that crazy. Like, that was the whole reason he was in it was to to bring that particular Cajun brand of madness.
4: Does, does he go uh, like he, full vampires kiss? you get the back half of that movie is is fucking bonkers. Like he go he does get very like, yeah very out there by the end. Okay, I gotta go watch it then. I think yeah. it's
3: streaming. Leave it leave it up to Werner Herzog to to get that kind of a
1: performance out of Nicholas Cage,
4: I always forget that Herzog is the one that, um, is the one that directed it or whatever. I do, <laughs> yep.
2: I've heard of that movie. I had no clue. Herzog directed it. What the it hell? Was, that like, was
0: so like briefly, yeah, briefly released and then just went under everybody's radar. <laughs>
1: mm-hmm. was I it was working I got a
0: noble when that came out.
1: I think I got it from Redbox pretty soon after it came out, like ten, twelve <laughs> years ago. Good old Redbox. The fact that Redbox is still a thing is
3: is kind yeah. of surprising to me. Like they they yeah, must really be is. making money somehow.
1: I mean, I see these DVDs anyone.
4: and Blu-rays, but I, I mostly, if I'm if I'm watching a movie I don't own, I usually just rent it online. Yeah. So
3: I, I guess don't like, know physical enough,
0: I get at the library now. Like,
3: right. I just I I don't know anybody who's ever been like, oh, I'm going to go get a movie from Redbox. Like, it's yeah. just never a phrase yeah. I've heard someone they're, say.
0: They're outside of the, the grocery store I go to all the time. I've never seen anybody actually using one.
2: They're pretty Dang. popular here. Really? Yeah. I mean, it, it's New Mexico. There are a lot of poor people here. Like, a lot of people here don't have internet that can maintain streaming. Um, And I don't think that's the main reason why people use Redbox. I think people mostly use Redbox because they're used to using DVDs or Blu-ray. Or they, like, have fond memories of going to Blockbuster and want to take their kids. Because I remember when I was young, there were still video rentals and stuff. And then as I grew up, Redbox became kind of the thing that my family would go to, which is hilarious
3: because, you know... It's like a vending machine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do miss Blockbuster, but up here, Wisconsin, uh, video stores never left. We have we have this brand called Discount Video, where you can still go rent stuff.
0: I do. I genuinely do miss it, especially with um, with video games, because I can still like rent a movie. You know, I can go to the library and get it. I can you know rent it online or whatever, and it's four bucks, whatever. But with video games like you have to commit to dropping 50 60 70 and hoping as hell that it's a good game that you're going to genuinely play a lot cuz otherwise you're just you're out you know oh. you can't rent them and just check them out anymore yeah.
2: look at Cody Mr. I'm too good for cloud gaming <laughs> too good for on live in game fly ooh Is Gamefly still a thing? No, absolutely not. They went out of business like 10 years ago. I remember Gamefly. I thought thought it died. The the great thing about Gamefly when it went out of business is that they just, they had like these perpetual licenses because of the way they negotiated their contracts with the rentals. And so they just gave them out. So I just got a bunch of free games because I signed up for a free trial once.
0: Damn, that's cool.
1: But it was a terrible service when it was running.
0: That's I remember hearing how how bad it was.
1: Well, if you if you're looking for a new place
3: to move, Cody, there's there's it's called Family <laughs> Video, not Discount Video, but they they still do video games.
0: Do they? I, all right, I'm on my way. They do. <laughs> the weather in Texas finally got decent, so maybe I'll stay here for a little bit. I don't want to though. After being in Philly for five days, I don't want to. I didn't want to come back. <laughs>